Welcome back to the program. Today we have talking heads and pundits. But back in the second half of the 20th century, we had writers and public intellectuals whose ideas, attitudes, and personalities became a very part of our public discourse. Two of those that were the touchstones of the times were William F. Buckley and Norman Mailer. Both wrote about history, about sex, about politics, and sometimes all at once. They were the guests you wanted to have at any dinner party. But they were also, each in his own way, bad boys of American letters. Buckley, with his rapier wit and insults, pushed away as many people as admired him. Mailer, with his pugilistic persona, further showed that with complex figures, the public surfaces were only part of the story. It's interesting that many of the political and culture war issues that we're still fighting about today were at the core of the discussions between Mailer and Buckley back in the 60s. This is the world that my guest Kevin Schultz writes about in his new book, Buckley and Mailer. Kevin Schultz holds a Ph.D. in history from UC Berkeley. He teaches 20th century American history at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about Buckley and Mailer, the difficult friendship that shaped the 60s. Kevin Schultz, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. Great to have you here. I want to, first of all, talk a little bit about your evolution in thinking about Buckley and Mailer and how the idea evolved to do this story of the two of them during this period in the 60s. Yeah, it's a great question, actually. One of the, I've taught the 1960s several times, and I never really had a way to teach my students sort of the, what was provoking the broad, big changes of the 1960s. What ideas were being challenged? What kind of social concepts and constructions were, were being reevaluated? And I was reading a magazine once right after uh, uh, Norman Mailer died, and he had, his papers had been opened up at the archives in the University of Texas. And I, a magazine published several of those letters. And one of the letters that this magazine published had just uh, this marvelous back and forth between Norman Mailer and William Buckley. And just a light bulb went on. I realized these two guys, one from the left, one from the right, they liked each other. They had a friendship. They corresponded. And in the nature of these letters, they talked about everything. They talked about civil rights. They talked about the Cold War. They talked about the women's movement. They talked about all the transformations of the 1960s. And, of course, one was advocating all that left-wing change, and the other was demanding a, a push to the right. And yet they had this really spirited engagement with one another that it just seemed irresistible as a way to talk about the 1960s through these two voices. The other thing about the two of them is that they came at their positions through such different ways. I mean, they were so opposite in so many ways beyond their politics. But but Buckley represented this very East Coast Ivy League orthodoxy and Norman Mailer kind of a, a street attitude from New York. And, and they approached their, their intellectual underpinnings in very different ways. No, that's exactly right. They, they, their, their political ideas came from their background, you know, sort of a middle-class Jewish background in Brooklyn from where Mailer come fr- came from, surrounded by socialists and all this radical thought, and then Buckley coming from a more patrician background in the East Coast suburbs of New York City. So they, they approached post-war, post-World War II America from, from these perspectives. And yet they both were really well-educated, really articulate guys, they shared a lot. They both went to Ivy League colleges. They both excelled at college and made a name for themselves. 
They both fought in World War II, although towards the end of action, on the periphery of action, and yet that was still a grounding experience for both of them. So they had a real sort of uh, enough common ground that they could really engage with each other uh, in a playful way. They sort of stemmed from the same vocabulary, if you will, even if they came to that position from, from different avenues. And of course, the one thing that always would unite them is they had a common enemy in Gore Vidal. Yeah, exactly. And they weren't alone in hating Gore Vidal. When, uh, when he could get going, he could be uh, quite a troublemaker. But yes, the, the, some of the legendary battles of the 1960s among these New York intellectuals circle around Gore Vidal, and both Mailer and Buckley got their hands dirty plenty times going after either verbally or literally physically going after Gore Vidal. Neither of them were afraid, neither Buckley nor Mailer were ever afraid to, to have the public turn against them. In many ways, they, they went out of their way to be provocateurs, in, in, with whatever their ideas might have been. No, that's absolutely true. They knew their role. They were intellectuals and creative thinkers trying to push the country in a different direction than the way it was going after the Second World War. And they were not afraid to make enemies. They were not afraid to attack people, to name names, these kinds of things. Um, when Mailer, for instance, got started to be attacked by the, the women's liberation movement in the late 60s and early 1970s, his way of responding was to write a huge uh, magazine article that he turned into a book, and then as a way of promoting it, he rented out a huge theater in New York City and invited four of the sort of most prominent women's liberationists to, to engage with him on the book. And in a, it's a great scene, this town hall debate. He shows up wearing a three-piece suit, ever the patrician. He starts calling all the panelists the, his, the ladies. He's just trying to, to amp up the, the opposition to try and get them to rethink their position. Of course, the fact that, that he had become infamous for stabbing his wife was not helpful either. <laughs> right, or being married six times right. or having a, you know, dozens and dozens of lovers and not being shy about those kinds of relationships. Yeah, he, he, there was a lot to attack him on, that's for sure. What was the appeal for Buckley, as best you can tell, in, in Mailer's personal life, the things we were just talking about? There was something about that, that that had a kind of purient appeal to Buckley because he was so conservative, so buttoned down in his own way. Yeah, that's, that's really the driving force of the book, is that question exactly. After Mailer stabbed his wife in the pages of National Review, which Buckley founded and edited for tens and tens of years, um, he, Buckley had called Mailer a moral pervert, somebody just to completely disregard. But then in 1962, they were invited to debate the future in Chicago. And at this debate, which was promoted like a prize fight, because it was two days before a prize fight between Sonny Liston and Floyd Patterson, at the middle of the debate, they sort of a light bulb goes on in both their heads, especially for Buckley. And he realizes that despite all of the sort of objectionable positions that Mailer has and all the things that he's done in the past, that Mailer, like Buckley, was really serious about changing America, about pushing his ideas forward, about challenging sort of the post-war, leave-it-to-beaver society, to enrich it, to make it somewhere that was more exciting to live, more exciting for the possibilities of the future. And so they had that in common, even though they both went at this sort of uh, stay at leave it to beaver kind of society from different perspectives. They both recognized 
that the other person was dead serious in their attempt to change and reshape America, and they both respected one another because of it. And the other interesting thing, as large as their egos were, they were willing to share the stage together, both literally and figuratively, that, that somehow the oppositeness of their personalities, of their politics, of their ideas about change really allowed the, their egos to, to almost be in check many times and, and their intellectual force to prevail. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. They love to listen to, if not exactly learn from, the other. I mean, they have letters back and forth where they comment on almost everything that the other person has written in preparation for a debate uh, that happened later in the 1960s. I found notes that suggested that Mailer had read everything that Buckley had ever written, and vice versa. They, 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 these, they were just completely and totally engaged with one another. And you're right. In some ways, they recognize the flip side of the coin in each other. That if I, I'm free to argue my position, and I know Buckley or Mailer is going to hate it, but they're going to argue their side of the position, and we'll have this spirited debate. One of the things that really proved so interesting to me was that neither of them went into debate with each other simply out just to score points, because they basically realize they're never going to convince the other to their side. But rather, they wanted to engage the ideas of the other, to try and talk about uh, what would be the best way to live. There's one point in one of their debates where Buckley's trying to sort of corner Mailer in a position, and Mailer just throws his arms up, and he says, I'm trying to talk about the nature of man. And that really grounded the relationship. To what extent is New York as a place in the 60s a character in all of this? It's, it's not uh, without some note that both of them in, in, you know, ran for mayor of New York or tried to. No, they both ran, that's right. for sure. Uh, Buckley in 65, Mailer in 69. Neither of them obviously was successful, and both of them accidentally allowed John Lindsay to win in some ways, uh, which is a huge irony. But yeah, New York was so central, and one of the really exciting parts about this book was seeing that intellectual and cultural and literary life flourish in New York. I mean, here's Gore Vidal, here's Truman Capote, here's Gloria Steinem, here's Jermaine Greer, here's James Baldwin, here are all these figures, and they're just hanging out, going to parties together, just trading uh, uh, cuts and, and discussing all the topics of the time. So yeah, it was really a fantastic moment. One of the, my favorite scenes to write about in the book was this chapter on Truman Capote's famous black and white mass ball of 1966, which took place in the Plaza Hotel right after Truman Capote had uh, achieved significant literary success. And there's Frank Sinatra, there's Mia Farrow, and they're all there at this party with Buckley and with Mailer, and they're all engaging and talking about ideas of the time. At that moment, it was Vietnam that was sort of spoiling everything, and Buckley uh, and Mailer almost get in a fistfight at the, at the black and white ball over the subject of Vietnam. So yeah, this New York really came to life for me when I was writing this book. How did they see what was going on in other parts of the country, I mean, some would have argued, some did argue to them that the, the really intellectual weight in the 60s was shifting to places like San Francisco. How did they, they view that? Well, they were definitely New Yorkers. I mean, they were centered in New York, and their life revolved around New York. And one of the parts of the, of the book that I found interesting was in the 1970s, when these two guys sort of begin to trail off as being of vital importance to American life, 
they're still important. They're still writing, of course, but they're not quite as central to the times as they were in the 60s. Well, that's when other areas outside of New York really begin to engage them. Uh, Mailer writes this unbelievable book in 1979, The Executioner's Song, which is about a murder in Utah. And so his gaze turns almost completely to the West and the wide open spaces of the West. And that said, they also, when they go follow the, the politics of the time, they actually go to San Francisco to the Cow Palace in 1964 to watch Barry Goldwater get nominated for president from the, for the Republican Party. And they look around and they see the California activists. They see all the people that had come to, to San Francisco to root on Barry. And they're very interested to know who is uh, the, the sort of core population that's supporting the conservative movement. And they realize it's not just New York. It's San Francisco and also Omaha and Des Moines and other places. And so over time, their view, uh, the sort of New York centrism begins to expand, and they realize that New York is not so central to the world and to the times. And of course, they both become political, I mean, they were, but, but publicly political commentators, political observers in 1968 with both the Democratic Convention in Chicago and the Republican Convention in Miami. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Both of them in the, in the 60s, well, Buckley is always sort of a political beast. That was his very first engagement from when he was right out of college, was to sort of advocate a conservative turn for American politics. Mailer was more a man of, of letters and arts in his early career. But by the 1960s, and even in the late 1950s, he turns full throttle into politics. He recognizes that there's this undercurrent of change that's taking place. It's bubbling up both on the right with the likes of Barry Goldwater and on the left with the likes of SDS and all the student revolts and the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, Betty Friedan, things like that. And so both of them get engaged directly into politics. And because they're so smart, so funny, so articulate, the, the networks jump on and try and hire them to be talking heads in some ways. The newspapers and the magazines hire them to write extended, extended pieces on the different campaigns that go on. And, of course, they're both famously at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago where Mayor Daley cracks down and all those famous scenes of the police beating down the protesters there to protest Lyndon Johnson, who, of course, had already stepped down, but also who was going to replace him as president. And so while this police riot is going on outside with those famous blue-helmeted cops, both Mailer and Buckley are there watching it. Uh, Buckley's commenting on TV, and he gets in a famous, famous fight with Gore Vidal, where, he co- where Gore Vidal calls him a crypto-Nazi, and uh, Buckley responds by calling him a queer, threatening to punch him in the nose. And Mailer, of course, is there, too, watching it all happen, and he writes marvelous pieces of journalism and eventually a book called Miami and the Siege of Chicago that just really explores the dynamism of the times. One of the dark sides, if, if one can say that, of Bill Buckley is his attitudes in the 60s about race, which, which he later repudiated and, and changed his views, certainly over time. Talk a little bit about how Mailer responded to, to those views from Buckley in the 60s. Yeah, it's a good question. And there are no heroes in, in my story. Neither Mailer nor Buckley got the civil rights movement quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, Buckley sort of took, well, not sort of, he absolutely took the position um, that the civil rights movement was wrong, that change maybe could come to the United States when it came to the question of race, but it it had to happen slowly 
and it was the responsibility of America's black people to, to use his language, to show themselves as civilized enough to earn the vote and to be treated as first-class citizens. And so the National Review really took on the mantle of dressing up these sort of racist ideas, giving them more intellectual clout, and uh, sort of supply, arming the conservative right wing with a way to oppose the civil rights movement. And Mailer, of course, thought he was all wrong on this. Mailer thought that that was a ridiculous conceit, of course, and Mailer himself supported the civil rights movement. But Mailer had a really interesting take on African Americans as well, which was not uncommon to many liberals at the time. He sort of viewed America's black people as having a heightened sexuality. And James Baldwin called him on this all the time, saying he thought that all black people uh, were walking around representing a giant phallus. And so Mailer himself wasn't exactly clean when it came down to uh, questions of race. Um, on the other hand, at least he did support the civil rights movement. Not only did Buckley not support the civil rights movement, I mean, one of the things we talked a little bit earlier about uh, the two of them being willing to say anything and, and, and acting as kind of provocateurs, Buckley's speech that he gave supporting the police in Selma was, of course, was something that, that drew an awful lot of scorn for Buckley. Yeah, that's a, that's a marvelous scene that I discovered when I was writing this book. Uh, in the middle 1960s, and especially after Selma, the police were getting a bad rap, so they invited Buckley to come speak at the New York City Holy Name Society, which was the largest police officers' organization in the city. And Buckley got up, and he propped up the cops, which is what he was supposed to do, and he said basically the media had been making too big of a deal out of what happened at Selma, and the activists who went to Selma knew what they were getting into, so why should we be surprised when it actually happens? Uh, of course, all the newspapers sort of drew blood. They all called him out on supporting the police actions in Selma. And he sort of backed, he never backed off, but he sort of felt he was being misrepresented. So in this marvelous scene, he discovers that the, the speech he gave was actually tape recorded by some of the fathers of the Holy Name Society. And so he invites all the press to come listen to the speech, which he himself had never listened to the tape before. So he arrives, and there's a full press conference there. All the reporters are sitting there. He hits play on the tape, and all of a sudden his speech starts being amplified throughout the, the, the conference hall. And right at the crucial moment where he brings up Selma, the tape player jams, and everybody leans in, and it doesn't start up again, it doesn't start up again. One of the cameramen that was there to cover the story actually went up and helped the tape player, and by the time they got it fixed, there was a crucial 30 seconds missing where he had actually defended the actions of the Selma police, but they were now gone from the record. So he, of course, was frustrated in his attempt to, to rescue himself, not that it would have happened anyway. And, when he, and so, of course, the newspapers cover this story in tremendous detail, and Mailer sees this in the newspaper, and he writes this great letter to Buckley. And the first line is, he basically says, Well, my friend Bill, I see now you're going to displace me as the most hated man in America. You know, we talked about New York as being a character in this story, in this relationship between the two of them. I think that the other character was perhaps alcohol and the influence that it had on both of them. <laughs> yes, they did enjoy drinking, and they definitely would occasionally saddle up at a bar next to each other and talk about life and talk about times. Yeah, there's sort of this heady, uh, heady spirit where, uh, heady added atmosphere where people are just out, they're socializing, they're drinking, they're engaging with each other, and they're doing so at a very high level. 
And the other subject that they both tap onto, of course, is the subject of America. So while they're drinking and having a good time and socializing, they're constantly bantering about what's good for the life of the country. Talk a little bit about the Vietnam period, because it had the impact of cooling their friendship a little bit. Yeah, it did, actually. Um, the subtitle of my book, is, is I, I call this the, the two men who shaped the, uh, the difficult friendship that shaped the 1960s. And the difficult friendship is a line that Mailer used when he was talking about uh, his friendship with Bill Buckley during the Vietnam War. The war, of course, as everybody knows, is very divisive in American life. And Mailer himself, he had been a long-time opponent of the Cold War in general, and so when Vietnam came to prominence, he was all ready to go as opposing uh, America's engagement with it. He sort of thought that the United States had better ways to expend its energy and its great wealth than fighting communism. Buckley, on the other hand, he grew up in, and was a devout Catholic, and Catholics were staunch opponents to uh, communism in general, and especially Soviet communism. And so he was a staunch Cold Warrior, and he proposed that maybe we should nuke the Chinese before they can build nuclear weapons themselves. He was a staunch Cold Warrior, and he understood, or at least felt like he understood, why the United States was engaging in Vietnam the way that it was. And so in the latter 1960s, they actually decline invitations to socialize together because they say that the, 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 the war would be too divisive and they wouldn't be able to engage with good humor as they had in the past. And that was actually the subject of the fight they got into at Truman Capote's Black and White Ball. And what lasting effect did that have on their friendship over the long run? You know, they recovered from it after a while uh, when the sort of battles between Vietnam lessened and the counterculture and the divisions of the 1970s came about, they were once again friendly. But as I discovered in the book, with the, in the aftermath of Vietnam, you get quick succession, the rise of the women's movement, you get Watergate, you get all these sort of tumultuous political activities. And they really begin to break apart the concept of, or the idea that there is a united America, if there ever was one that the United States was really splintered between these different factions and these different desires. And when that splintering happens, it becomes very difficult for public intellectuals like Buckley and Mailer to feel confident enough to speak on behalf of the nation. They begin to wonder, who can speak on behalf of the nation? Can anyone? And so it really sort of lessens uh, the importance of their role as critical voices in American life. And so with that, the discussions that they have become more socialite-type type of discussions. They see each other at fashion shows. They, they go over to dinner parties together. Uh, one of my favorite finds in the archives, actually, was a charitable organization in 1975 was auctioning off a night with William F. Buckley. And they asked Mailer if he would write up the description of the prize and then conduct the auction. And so in the archives, I found this two-page fantastic letter, or description, I guess, that Mailer had written of Buckley. And it's, of course, painted with all this famous Buckleyite language, these polysyllabic words that nobody knows the meaning to. It's just a hilarious piece of writing. And then after it was over, he sent it to, to Buckley. And he said, yours to frame or just to flip away? And Buckley writes back and says, thanks so much. I haven't met the winning bidder yet, but when I do, I shall try and sound as smart as you make me. 
What role did wives play in their relationships, Patricia Buckley uh, uh, and and the various wives of Mailer along the way? Yeah, it's, it, 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 that was an interesting find too. I found that in the beginning of their relationship, they when they began to socialize, it was their wives who sort of became uh, softeners. So rather than it just be a, po- a political battle, constant conversation about America, where they saw each other as enemies, their wives really liked each other. I mean, Patricia, uh, Pat Buckley had nicknames for Mailer, and Mailer always called her Slugger. And when he went through one of, the, one of his many divorces, she wrote him a note, a condolence note, and tried to get together with dinner. So they, they really acted as a way that could solidify the friendship between the two. That said, in almost all of the invitations back and forth, there's always a line from either Mailer or Buckley, both of them did it, that said, and maybe after dinner, the two of us might retire to somewhere quiet where we can go back to our deep conversations about the life of the country. It's a great story. Buckley and Mailer is the book, The Difficult Friendship That Shaped the 60s. Kevin Schultz, Kevin, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.